Truth in His Art. I am your host, Rob Lee. Thank you for tuning in to these conversations at the intersection of arts, culture, and community. Today, we're delving into the world of a visual master whose lens has chronicled an array of narratives from the intimate corners of human emotion to the grand stages of global brands. His work not only reflects the zeitgeist, but also shapes it, engaging with giants like Apple and Hulu while keeping his finger firmly on the pulse of the streets. Please welcome Sean Peters. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for making the time. And, you know, I've made a point over like the last like four months to have more of the video component. I don't do the full video, but I do have excerpts from it. And Mm -hmm. it's great to see someone that's wearing what my normal fit is. Because that's a sweatshirt, mm-hmm. I'm assuming. And so that's a normal fit. It's <laughs> my hat, sweatshirt, beard. We're here. We are. <laughs> Terrence got his little mattress right here, so let me just turn over here to the cold drink. <laughs> um, so be- before we get into the the, the deeper conversation, um, I want to give you the the space to to introduce yourself. I think that there is a lot that's that's there that often gets missed when we have the artist statement or the online bio. I remember doing an interview with someone. I'm going over all of the accolades, and they were like, "You forgot one." I was like, "Which one is that?" And they were like, "I'm a human." And I was like, "All right, I'm going to start passing it off to people. Put the onus on you." <laughs> So if you will, could you could you give us a little bit? Who who are you? Like introduce yourself. Um I'm Sean Peters. I would say I'm an artist um, who's really interested in beauty and the be- and beauty and objects. You know, I'm a filmmaker by trade, so my checks will often say um, cinematographer or, or director of photography entitled right at the moment. Um, but I also am a collector of fine art, ceramics. I love chocolate, dark chocolate. Um, and I, there's something else that I was thinking of, like yet, literally yesterday, I was like, man, you love that. And now I can't think of it. <laughs> I like a lot of things. I like objects. I like beauty. I like things that are beautiful. That's that's dope. That's a, see, it's better than what I would have found online. You know what I mean? So yeah, yeah, it, sure. it's working. It works. It works. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, too, enjoy uh, dark chocolate. It's like, look, you know, it's got to be 70 <laughs> pure. Let's make it. Let's... <laughs> <laughs> so it, so from the from the creative side, I like to, like, go back to some of those like those moments, like those early moments um, that kind of set you on your path, like maybe some of those like early life um, moments or some of those inspirations that, you know, had you like realizing like, hey, I like beautiful things or hey, I like the way this looks. I like this visual. Um, tell me about some of those those early moments where creativity was just top of mind, not even like early in the career, but just this sort of early realization of, of creative things for you. I have to say, to give context that I never thought of myself as an artist. Mm. And that came late in life, you know? I thought, I, when I was in like junior high school, let's say, I, I really respected Bill Cosby, right? <laughs> and I was like, from Fat Albert to, you know, the Cosby show and all those things that, that were happening, I understood his power. Right. Not, um, you know, over other people, but I understood his ability to 
you know, to educate, not just educate, but to, you know, be in the lexicon, be in culture, to create culture for Black people, and then and to influence minds in a certain way. So it, at, in junior high school, I realized that media was important, and I didn't know what, how I would participate, but I knew, I thought maybe I might be a journalist, you know, or I would go to journalism school, or even might be on, you know, even a newscaster or something. I was like, oh, maybe I'll just be a newscaster. I'll be in journalism. So I didn't really know, I didn't have anyone in my family. I come from a very working class, sort of black family from New York, Bronx, Harlem, and New Rochelle, Mount Vernon. And um, no one that I knew personally was a full-time artist that made money. Right. Not a single human being that I knew personally, you know. So everyone I knew had jobs. They might be poets. My, my uncle might have had a little book published one time. You know, they might like painting or they might, you know what I mean? They might like they might like theater or film or music, but they had day jobs. Everybody just had a job, you know? So I had a few cousins that are maybe were interested in things that were more eclectic or more interesting, but they all just, they all had degrees. Some had degrees, some didn't, but they all worked. Yeah. You know? And so I didn't really know for the longest time that that was a thing, you know, a job. Um, and it wasn't, so I had a, I went, I got, I went to Morehouse undergrad and I thought I was going to uh, be an English teacher. But I have friends who were making films, small films there. Yeah. And there's a, there's a, a, a famous professor named Dr. Eichelberg who was at Clark who taught um, a 16 millimeter film production class. It was like, uh, 16 millimeter one and two as an elective. Yeah. And so in the AUC, you can take classes anyway. If you're more as you can take classes at Clark or at Spelman, as long as you take your bulk, your major courses at your, your primary institution. And so I took those course. I took those courses. Yeah. You know, and I was like, okay, that's interesting. I still didn't know if I was good at it in any way. But my friend at the time, Jonathan Roper, who was from New York, was making these short films and he was engaging me and you have the camera operate sometimes and blah, 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 blah. But I still, even before I graduated, didn't think I was going to be a filmmaker. I'd already been interviewing my senior year at uh, high schools to teach English. Yeah. And, and so to make a long story short, Jonathan was like, yo, there's this film program at the University of South Carolina that's up the road. I'm going to go show my film to the head of the, the film department. Do you want to take a ride? And I was like, why not? It's four hour drive, drive. So we drove up. He showed his film, which was like a proto Daughters of the Dust kind of thing. It was like before Daughters of the Dust, but it was about kind of Gullah, but in, in Savannah, the Savannah Seans, you know, so he did this little film about that. And we went and showed it to, her name was Dr. Wirtz, who was the head of the department. And I can't remember the, the professor's name at the time for some reason. Um, but he he went in on the film saying it wasn't universal enough and that it wouldn't appeal to a broader audience to two white people, right? Right. So I, and, I, and my friend Jonathan is not the most I wouldn't say the most verbal person on the planet. He's a visual person, yeah. and so he was kind of just like allowing that conversation to happen. Yeah. And so I was I wasn't there for any reason. So I just I just jumped in on the conversation and decided. Blah, 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 blah. He started chopping this dude down about <laughs> cultural specificity and what does that mean? 
Yeah. You know, is Schindler's List cultural, too culturally specific? Mm-hmm. You know, why is this Gullah film too cold? What does that mean? You know, are white people not curious? You know? Mm-hmm. And so we went to this whole thing and he conceded to my argument. And before I left, Dr. Wirtz was like, you know, can I stay in touch with you? Now it's like, this is before um, cell phones, really. It was like the first cell phones. I didn't have when I was in college. Yeah. And it was like, it was, they were expensive. They had, we had pages and, sh- and stuff like that back then. And um, I gave her my mom's number, literally, in New York. Like, here's my mom's number. You can call her, <laughs> you know? And so I had an internship back in New York that summer that I always had my, my cousin hooked me up with to make a little extra money. And I got a call there from my mom saying that someone named Dr. Wirtz called and wanted to talk to me. Yeah. So I called her back. I, I kind of remember And I was like, yeah, okay. I called her back and she was like, would you be interested in coming to school here? And I was like, well, I didn't apply. She was like, don't worry about the application. Just, you know, get, get your transcript sent. She said, but I'm willing to offer you a full scholarship and a TA position. Oh, wow. So I ended up going to the University of South Carolina to study film and by accident, really. I had no intention of going there, you know. Wow. So that's how that's how the creativity started. It was in that program. I actually started getting more interested in still photography. Yeah. There was a guy named Gene Crediford, professor there. Quirky, looked like Einstein. Quirky, who, who introduced me um, to the work of Roy DeCarava. I was a you know famous black photographer, one of our one of our greatest influences as cinematographers, black cinematographers. Yeah. I didn't know that at the time. And I had never heard of him. You know, I knew about Gordon Parks and a few other cats. And, but Roy, I didn't hear of him. This is early, early on before Roy had his big moment retrospective, before he kind of became, in the art world, public consciousness. Now, Roy DeCarreva print is like 90 grand to buy a Roy DeCarreva print. He's deceased. But um, I went and stalked Roy DeCarreva when I was back. Oh, he worked at Hunter College. And um, I went, I would write him, I would call him, and he would like, he would tell me that he wouldn't see the work of non-students, that he had to reserve his critique to people who were paying tuition. Yeah. So I just went there and sat in his office until he saw me. And then finally he saw me. And he told me, I had my book of prints, you know, that I made in the dark room. And he told me before I gave him the book, he said, you know, I've been known to tell people to stop shooting. You know, I've been no, I'm not a nice guy. Like I will tell you, if you suck, you should not do this this work. You know, and now he's like, You still want me to see your work? <laughs> and I'm sweating. <laughs> <laughs> so I hand him the book and he's looking at me, you know, he's looking at the images, mass stoic, no expression on his face. And he looks, he finishes the paid book, he says, You should continue shooting. He said, but you print with too much contrast. Let me show you. They took me into his dark room, showed me how he print. I spent a whole day with him. So that was the moment for me when Roy DeCarava, who's now my probably the greatest influence, one of my greatest influences, told me that I should continue making images. You know, that that was the moment. I said, okay, I, I, I have some. That's, that's really dope. And see, see here, here's the thing. Here's the thing. When I'm letting people cook, right, it knocks out other questions. <laughs> <So> <laughs> that's that's really dope. And, 
No, no. And, and, and I think the other thing that's 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 really cool about it, um, you know, just based on a few things you said, I, I was telling you about my partner earlier. Y'all probably went to school together. So the time yeah. is very similar and the story is very similar. She was studying film, I think. <laughs> Holman. So there you go. Wow. She probably so, was she's probably much younger than I am. But yeah, that's yeah. Uh, but I, I, I think like and kind of the way that we we get to it, like hearing like, hey, you know, kind of by accident, kind of by chance encounter um, and this sort of creative life, this creative pursuit, you know, mine is a, a little similar, like coming from there were some artists around. I had a uncle that was an artist, but he passed before I was born. So I was like, oh, I have no reference point. And mm -hmm. Not even in this. I wanted to be a cartoon artist, like an illustrator and, th and things of like that and doing comics. And um, I was like 24 and burnt out in my day job. You know, like, got to do something that makes money. That's what I would hear. And I was like, I want to be an artist. Nah, you got to gotta get a business degree. And I went to Morgan and, um, you know, had all of that different stuff. And, you know, I did the first job. Um, out, of, out of college, was a marketing job, trying to make it a creative marketing job. It was a marketing analysis job. Not sexy, not fun. And I was looking for an outlet creatively. And I was like, I'm into some weird stuff. I like documenting and, and talking about different things and really revisiting like pop culture and media. So I started doing a podcast. This is 2009. I went wow. across the street to Best Buy, bought a bunch of equipment, didn't know what I was doing. Spent that last $500 I had in my wallet, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and bought some gear. I still had the gear to this day. And that was sort of the thing. And it was just figuring it out. And one of the things you, you touched on earlier that I thought was really funny being on this, this other side of it now, um, been doing a pod, been podcasting for as long as I have, but also I've been able to be an educator for folks who are diving into the podcast scene. That's a side gig that I'm working in. And folks come to me and say, like, Hey, so what do you think about podcasting? It's like, so do you have the stamina for, cause I might tell you to stop. And <laughs> I, I've said that to people and I was like, that's a little spicy, but hearing that that's maybe part of your journey. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was honest. I think, you know, why I tell someone, and this is a guy who's known as, as the perennial genius of photography, black photography. He's the first black man, first black person, maybe, or black man, particular for sure, to go to Cooper Union. You know, this is a real artist, elder, like dedicated his life to this. And so for him to even to him to acknowledge me like that was huge. And he could have been like, he probably would have been better. It would have been better for me if he was like, don't waste your time. What are you doing? Like, you're not, this is not your thing, you know? Well, I, I, I want to move into to this a little bit. Um, so is, is there an experience? Because, I, you know, no, normally you talk about like the first gig and, and feel free to, to chime in as it relates to any like projects you've worked on, any of your own projects, any, you know, sort of collaborations, any projects that you, you know, had clients, what have you. But, you know, could you share an experience that, you know, kind of pushed the boundaries of what those creative skills and those technical skills are that it was like, I went from being at this level to I'm at this level now after this, this sort of project and this experience. You know, I worked on a series in Wilmington um, and I can't remember the name of the series <laughs> because I only did one. <laughs> but it was like, you know, probably a $200 million series for Hulu, you know, car chases. And it was a femme fatale, big, big sets, big costumes. 
and I hadn't worked on, you know, sets of that scale before. I hadn't worked on with crews of that scale before, chase scenes of that scale before. So I kind of went from making indie films, you know, to doing this like huge thing all of a sudden. And it was a tough experience for me. It was, you know, crews trying to sabotage me. It was, it was kind of crazy. Um, I was isolated way down in North Carolina. But, you know, it was a, I learned a lot from that. You know, it took my level of understanding of the production, of the process, and I was able to take that into, you know, Tal and Gray, you know, which is about the same level. Yeah, I think when we, we have those, those moments, those experiences, it's, you know, and don't doing this podcast, right? You know, I, I have done 700 plus at this point in four mm-hmm. years of age. And sometimes I'll get someone, I'm like, how the hell did I get this person? And then other times I'm like, oh, okay, cool, this is good. And trying to deliver ultimately the same thing in terms of the, the effort that I'm putting in, the the, the quality of, of what the output is going to be. And sometimes it's like this one left, whether it be the person's not really into the conversation, whether it is the person is just preoccupied and have other things going on, or I just frankly sucked. And I will learn, <laughs> I'll, I'll learn things from that or even mm-hmm. in being independent as, you know, I'm, I'm pursuing this the way that I am. And sometimes things just blow up in your face and I, I, I stick with it. Like I said, I've been doing the podcast thing for 15 years, but mm-hmm. yeah. And when, you know, getting, getting budgets now, getting funding now, I'm like, okay, I hope I do good. It's, it's like the beginning of that, uh, that in is crazy. The Richard Pryor joy. It's like, I hope I'm funny, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Now it's real, man. It's, um, I've been fired before, you know, off a of film project. I mean, you know, because me and the directors, I don't know, it was whatever, it was a clash, it didn't work out. You know, that took me back, my confidence back, you know, a few steps. So, you know, you've been, you go through, I'm sure every DP goes through, you know, the, you know, every time I step on the set, Really, I feel like a charlatan. You know, every time I step on the set, I'm like, "Can I? Do, do I remember? Do I do, do? Do I do this? I don't remember." <laughs> you know, every time it feels like a new like challenge. Like, oh yeah, that's right, I do. And then you get one day, and you're like, "Oh yeah, I do this." You How know? do you rebound from that though? When you have those moments when you you feel like a charlatan, or you feel like uh, people use an imposter syndrome, but I don't know if they're. Yeah. I think that's reserved for a certain class of folk. But yeah. when you have those moments of, you know, like, and, and I'm saying it maybe selfishly for myself, like how do you recover from those moments? How do you, you know, tap back into sort of what the source is or what the being rooted in, like, no one shit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I really just, I come, I don't, I just go into like a real kind of Buddhistic um philosophy that it's going to be I'm going to show up and do my best and it's going to be what it is you know what I mean and I think and I have faith that I've been doing this for a minute I have faith that I do actually know what I'm doing and that it'll all fall into place you know and so but I'm always nervous I'm always like I don't know what this director's going to be like I don't know how we're going to gel I don't know how the crew a lot of times you're meeting crews and working for them for the first crew in Chicago, I never met them. You know, I didn't know them. And a lot of times, 
and in new television, these series like for Hulu or Amazon or whatever, the budgets are getting a bit smaller than they were. And so me bringing a gaffer in from LA or my gaffer from most of my gaff, the guys I work with continually from LA, but me bringing in my gaffers or my key grip, a lot of times it becomes a difficult conversation now. So they want you to work with a local cat. And so you're interviewing cats and you're, you know, hoping that they're good, you know? And, and I got lucky in Chicago that I found the A squad. Yeah, you know what I mean. And it was a young brother who's got for a diet, make up a diet. Um, and Ed, who had our key grip, and their their crews were fantastic. And the crews were, you know, of color, mostly of color, and women. You know, it was very diverse, essentially mostly, but it was a lot of diversity, a lot of um, different gender expressions and queer identities as well. So it was a good experience in that crew. I, I like the 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 thing that you said earlier, sort of the Buddhistic, the or even I even throw out there the Gambate of it all, the the Japanese thing. It's like, look, luck doesn't exist. It's like, look, I'm going to do my thing, and the chips will fall where they will. But I know that I've done my piece. This is what I control in it, and you know, mm-hmm. I've been trying to abide by that because I, I really get caught in doing this. I'm good in this way. I'm good in this sort of control setting or even one to one, like if we were in the, the sort of in the same space together. Right. But, mm-hmm. you know, when, when folks are in your ear and they're saying this is the next stage for you, you should be doing these like in person things because and I definitely want to get your take on this because you have to get the attention economy. You have to grab people. You have to always be putting something out there. You got a 10 exit, bro. It's like, no, I just I just want to do this. I, I like this. I like having conversations with people more talented than me, as I like to joke about. That's the thing I, I enjoy doing. And I try not to go too far away from that while mm-hmm. sort of moving the needle that pushes the boundaries of, okay, I want to talk to these types of people. I want to have conversations with these folks. I want to be able to maybe improv probably 40% of this interview versus being completely structured. So, But, you know, how do you as you're progressing through through your career and through your creative journey, which I always feels weird saying journey, how do you continue to like push like the boundaries of you know, like your creative expression while like, you know, being able to work with clients and, and being able to be part of these different projects? How do you marry the two of those? Well, you know, I will say it's interesting, man. I was, I was telling somebody the other day that I'm, I'm not super ambitious, you know? I'm much more, my ambition really goes towards my curiosity and sort of learning something new and being, doing something better, exploring something better than what I did the last time. It's not really like I got to do a bigger project necessarily. I mean, I like money. Don't get it twisted. You know, I'm a socialist who likes money. (laughs) Oh, enjoys nice. I say I enjoy pretty things, right? And so, um, but yeah, I don't, I, you know, for the longest time, I couldn't do, get into the commercial world. You know, not big. You know, I would do like little small web kind of things, smaller web master classes and those kind of things. And they were decent. You know, you can make, if a DP is working on master classes is, as an ancillary, you can make an ancillary outside of your other work. You can make an ancillary little 100 Gs working in master classes. You know what I mean? Which is nice. Yeah. But it's not, it's, you know, it's, and you work on sets, you learn how to work on sets, you get all these kind of things that you can kind of, if you're a young DP doing like that kind of thing, 
is a good platform for a decent little living and learning, right? But I wasn't, that's not creative, you know what I mean? It's okay, you can learn, you can be a little creative, but it's three cameras on a person, basically. And um, and so I came up with a few mentors and a few people that I idolized, like Arthur Jaffa, you know, who's probably the biggest black contemporary artist now, one of them, and um, who was a cinematographer in his early days and kind of stopped doing that as a, as a major thing, as a main thing, and then got into the fine art world later in life. He's probably in his 60s, I would assume. Um, and so Arthur Jaffa, going back to Arthur Jaffa, Arthur Jaffa did a film called Doors of, Doors of the Dust, Yeah. right? That I saw when I was in high school. Uh, well, I forgot what year it was, but it was sometime early. And that was one of the first films I saw that I was like, this is art. This, whoever shot this, I recognized it. I was like, whoever photographed this is an artist. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and then obviously I did, I saw Belly and Clockers and saw the work of Malik Saeed and started reading about that cat who was another idol. And then I realized that they were doing stuff together. And so once I became friends with AJ later on, you know, we developed, he started seeing my work and we developed a friendship. And so once AJ kind of blew up, he kind of, he blew up like instantly. He was like off of this one Art Basel thing. And then he he got this, uh, he had an opportunity to direct this LeBron James Nike commercial. And at that time I hadn't done Nike commercial. I hadn't done any commercial even. I mean, I've done small commercials, you know, big, pretty decent sized commercials, nothing like that. Yeah. You know, nothing like Wyden Kennedy, LeBron James, Nike commercial. And so he got the commercial and he was like, Sean Peters is going to shoot it. And they were like, well, where's his Nike commercial? He was like, you don't have one. They were like, well, we usually, he's like, I'm not going to do it unless Sean does. Yeah. And most directors don't do that. They're not going to compromise their bag for a DP. Yeah. And so we did it. And it was, I thought it was one of my best work, pieces of work at the time. And that was it. Then now I'm doing Super Bowl commercials and you know the biggest directors, biggest commercials. You know what I mean? And uh, and so where commercials is where the bag is for a DP. That's where you make your. That's where you make your. Am I doing your series or your, or your or your film money? Because I don't need to. Yeah. So it affords you to make choices. You know on what you want to do creatively. Um, so that was a big gift for me, and I you know I've been running. That's been by four, by five, six years ago. And I've been running ever since in the commercial world, which has allowed me to, you know, and now I'm shooting for Bradford Young. He's directing commercials now. I'm DPing for him. And I just directed something, a small thing for, for Sundance and, and a brand So in Baltimore. So maybe I might, hopefully I might start directing some, some things soon. But, but yeah, it was like a, but you know, I, what I didn't tell you I'm not sure if I'm answering your question correctly. I'm kind of going on a tangent. But what I didn't tell you is that after film school, after that whole experience, I was too broke to pursue film. So I went into, I ended up after graduate school, you know, temp jobs, hustling. uh, And then I, I ran to a friend that was doing early on websites before people was even on there. 
Yeah. And so he was like, man, why don't you work with me, man? We can try to pitch these black companies. We had a, a little company called New York Online. And he was like, why don't we, we pitch these businesses? It was like, you know, I'm talking about like, you know, Apollo Theater. We go to the Apollo Theater and try to get them a website. They didn't have one at that time. <laughs> or like, Wells, chicken and waffles, you know, Harlem, you know, stuff in Harlem and Brooklyn and just black businesses that were known. We're like, yo, you need, you need a website. It's a thing called the internet. <laughs> and so we did that and I got a little experience understanding of that. And then I met his brother and his brother was working at AT&T as like a data network salesman or something. So he was basically selling that time T1 lines that were dedicated to like from New York to Japan doing exchanges from bank to bank. It was like a pipe. This business when it was dialogue. Yeah, yeah. Maybe DSL was just coming on the scene. But I think it was after before that. You know, it was because I remember I had one of the first DSL pipes um, of things. And so, you know, I was I got I was like, yo, can I? I was like, I saw yeah, like a band he was chilling. I was like, yo, where'd you get? <laughs> how can I get a job at AT&T? And he was like, well, I can't get you a job doing what I'm doing, but I can get you an entry level sales job. So I got an interview, I, I got the job. So I ended up being at AT&T and then I ended up with his job maybe a year later. Right. And then, and so I, I started like, at, you know, my 20, 26 years old back then I'm doing very well financially. I'm doing very better than all my friends. Mm-hmm. You know, I have, I had, you know, money, you know, for my age, you know, and living in Fort Greene and I was tricking, you know, <laughs> enjoying my life, you know, <laughs> and, you know, and I was able to still be a, I was able to have, take trips to this place and that place and do still photography projects. And, you know, when I was all, when I had time off and all that, yeah. um, but that took me away. And then I ended up a client of mine who was a black owned information technology company, a big one took me from AT&T. It was like, he poached me basically was like, why don't you come work for us? We'll give you like at that time we're talking about early, like, you know, early 2000s, like 99, 2001. They were like, we'll give you $150,000 plus bonus, you know what I mean, a year, 150, something crazy. I was making close to $175,000 a year at, at that time. And I was in my 20s. You know what I'm saying? I mean, like my uncles and aunts, none of them were making that money. You know what I mean? I mean, that, when, I, when I got out of, and thank you for, for, for sharing that, because that definitely makes it makes it another one of those connections where, you know, my first job out of college was at that AT&T competitor and I was doing marketing mm-hmm. and, uh, and you know, it was the most money that I ever made. And it was, you know, at that time, and I was making more than both of my parents uh, combined mm-hmm. and all of that different stuff and having sort of those, those, those headaches that come there. But, you mm-hmm. know, like I said, you know, at 24, two years in, I'm like, I'm burnt out. This money doesn't mm-hmm. matter. No, that's what happened. And even yeah. looking at the career trajectory of, yeah. well, you can do this, but you know, sometimes you're only sleeping like six hours a night. I was like, nah, doesn't work yeah. for me. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I only sleep six hours at night now, but not because <laughs> just because I can't sleep. But but yeah, I mean, yeah, so I ended up the the it was a serpentine story, but I ended up with a that management consulting company, the division I was in ended up leaving and starting their own company. Now I'm a partner in a in a IT company out in Jersey. Um, it lasted for, for a few years. I can't remember how, long, how many before. And, you know, there was a controversy in the company. I left, ended up starting a record label with some friends of mine. And we did this thing called Rebel Soul Records. 
You know, we started working with artists like Martin Luther and just got Cody Chestnut and a few other people that we were working with. And um, did that for a while, thinking that that's an entry into being creative. And it was, you know, I was helping shape these albums and stuff. And um, was was in on, started doing events, music events at this place called Weeksville. I was early on working with Afropunk, you know, that kind of stuff. And um, one day I was just like, I want to be a cinematographer. I was talking to this guy named Blitz the Ambassador who ended up directing The Color Purple, this new Color Purple musical. Yeah. But this is when he was a musician. And I was booking him and he was my boy, you know what I mean? But I was like, yo, Blitz, man, you're not going... I, t- I was telling him, we were sitting on my stoop in bed at the time, and he was like, we were just talking about life. You know, he's my boy. So I was like, what are you doing? He was like, well, I'm just trying to... I said, you got to stop trying to... He's Canadian. And I was like, you got to stop trying to rap like Nas, bro. I was like, you're not... You gotta, you're not gonna be Nas. Like, you want, why, where's Africa? Where's Africa in this? Yeah. You should be doing high life. You should be doing Ghanaian music. And so he he was like, boom. So he made his whole record, Native Son, with the high life music. And he was like, what do you, what do you wanna do? And I was like, man, if I had to, if I had any courage, I'd be a cinematographer. You know? So he's like, well, I'm gonna challenge you. So we challenge each other. He said, I'll make this record, this high life record, if you pursue your dream. And so I ended up, I like maybe six thousand, ten thousand dollars in the bank, maybe, and I ended up buying a camera and uh, going to to the summer course at NYU in cinematography. Like right after we had this conversation, and then I ended up. It's a long story, man, but I ended up this guy from Holland, a Dutch rapper who knew my work at Rebel Soul, found me in the states. He's like, I want you to work on this record with me here. So I worked A and R this record, and then we finished it. And then I was like, he was like, come back to Holland and talk to the labels with me. I went to Holland and we shot a music video for the record. Yeah. I came back. I'm just still scrambling, trying to figure out how to make my ends meet. And uh, I see this Indiegogo campaign for Terrence Nance's short film, How Does It Feel? So I'm like, oh, this dude is brilliant. I didn't, you know, I was like, wow, incredible. And it couldn't have been a week later, I saw him on the, on the train platform because he has you know, distinctive big hair. Yeah. And so I was like, are you Terrence Nance? He was like, yeah. He was like, you know, I was like, oh, you live in this neighborhood? He said, yeah, I just got back. I was in Paris, you know, for a couple of years, studying, you know, working. And I was like, man, I saw your thing. It's inspiring. And then he was like, what do you do? And I just said, I'm a cinematographer. I just said it. Oh, yeah. I just claimed it. You know what I mean? So he was like, you got a camera? I was like, yeah. He was like, I'm, gonna, I'm about to do shoot this music video for my boy. And I need somebody with a camera. He said, can you send me something you shot? So I sent him the thing I just did in Holland. He loved it. He was like, yo, that's bananas. Like, you want to work with me? So we ended up shooting a video for his boy, who was Blitz the Ambassador. Wow. <laughs> so we ended up shooting this video, and it came out crazy. And my boy called me. I was in the music business for a long time, so my boy, Guy Rute, who was in Baltimore now, called me out the blue and was like, yo, man. He was managing Farrell Monch. And so he was like, yo, man, Farrell saw this video, man. A blister named Blister Ambassador, and they had credits. And at the end, I saw your name. He was like, You you shooting video now? And I was like, Yeah. And he was like, Yo, can we meet? I'm trying to do this video for the songs. So we ended up doing this video for, for Pharaoh. And then we did another one, another one. That's the thing that we're doing. We did a fe- independent feature called Oversimplification of Our Beauty. It went to Sundance, ba 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 ba. And I ended up, you know, we did uh, off for short, another short that we did that went to another festival. I got signed by an agent, by William Morris, you know, agency. That was it. I mean, 
the trajectory. It's just like you're Johnny on the spot all, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it was just one of those things where like, I guess I was meant to get here. It took me a long time. I didn't start shooting again. Motion. I was doing stills the whole time, but I didn't start shooting motion again. There's a story why I stopped. I, I forgot to tell you that, but that's another maybe another podcast. But um, I, that was in the early 30s, you know, yeah. when I got back into it, 30, 34, maybe. I mean, as I encroach on 40, I'm 39, just turned 39, but yeah, as I encroach on and I'm just like, you know, sort of what is the the next part of the wave? As an Aquarius, I always throw out the wave as the thing. I'm just riding the wave. And mm-hmm. also, I'm, I'm ambitious, but ambitious in a very specific way. And I, I like the thing that you were, you were saying, like, you know, earlier about not necessarily being ambitious, but you like the things that you like. And I'll put this on it. Dark chocolate's not expensive. I'll, I'll say that much. It's not, it's not expensive. You <laughs> have a lifestyle we must keep up. Um, but yeah. But I think Aquarius, I know Aquarius is very well. Because no. all my major, Terrence Nance is an Aquarius. All my major collaborators, a lot of my collaborators, I'm a Gemini, so it's like an Aquemini thing. So a lot, a lot of my collaborators have been Aquariuses, yeah. you know, and I know that with and my, one of my partners for nine years, she was an Aquarius. And I know that Aquariuses don't do well with not actualizing. Yeah. You know, it becomes misery. They have to actualize, you know, because they have a lot, most of their world, a lot of the, as far as my, I've learned, most of, a lot of the, their world is in their head. Like a lot of the Aquarius's world, like how they experience the world is here. <laughs> You're, you're, you're spot it's on. Not, it's not through the outside world. <laughs> it's Yeah, so I can understand that. I can understand how you want to, you guys, you guys are very curious and need to always learn too. So I can see how, I would just say my, my suggestion to you would be age doesn't, I learned that if you want to do something, age, don't let age be a, a lot of people do that. I'm like, oh, I'm too old. I was full, fully too old. To, that was my third career. That was my third career at that point. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Technology, music, and then boom. Yeah. And so I just was like, I'm gonna do it. And I was broke. And I, it took me a minute. But once I once I broke, I broke broke. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And so it, it uh you just have to know that, you know, meditate on the fact that life is change, you know. And that's inevitable anyway. You know, we can't be afraid of it. It's a, a very, very deep thing you just said there. All right, all right. You know, just... <laughs> so, yeah. so I got, I got one more real question, right? And then I have a few rapid fire questions before we wrap up here, because I definitely want to be mindful of everything to get everything in. Hey, guys, I want to tap back in real quick in the middle of this uh, great interview to remind you yet again to leave a review on the podcast, wherever you listen, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, um, on YouTube, leave a comment leave a review, subscribe. It definitely helps us. We're in a fight to beat the algorithm. You know, there are so many podcasts out there. The numbers are in the hundreds of thousands. So I'm always appreciative of any time that you all spend with my podcast, but definitely make it known. Leave us a review, five stars, or whatever you think uh, this podcast is worth. And definitely uh, drop us a line. We're on um, X, we're on uh, Instagram, Facebook, all of the platforms, say hello, you know, chat with us, chat with uh, me because I'm the person running it. But yeah, definitely um, hit us up, leave a review, all of that good stuff. Let us know what you think about the podcast. It really does mean a lot. And thank you for your continued support. And back to the podcast. 
Um, mm-hmm. And this is sort of the, the the last real one that I have for you. Uh, this is one that I've been kind of playing around exploring recently. This this mm-hmm. notion around like being a problem solver. I think we all have our, our different mm-hmm. tools. What have you? Um, I've used the scenario multiple times. I'll set up for recording and inevitably just to make sure my process is tight, I'll forget something. I'll forget recording device. I'll forget like the, the, the car, <laughs> the mic, something that makes me MacGyver. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And now, so when something inevitably goes awry, cause there's always something that goes wrong. And I know from a production standpoint, <laughs> there's always something that goes wrong. What in, you know, in your, your sort of journey, like where you're at now, what was something that used to be like, you know, insurmountable, something that felt like a mountain that now feels like a molehill, like it's light work. Um, you know, I think getting to the point where what felt like a mountain before was just like, you know, how to become, how do I become the cinematographer I am now in terms of my career, my access to work, yeah. you know, um, and now I'm like, I have to turn down work. You know what I mean? And so it was more like a fear of like, ugh, is this ever going to shift to abundance? Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be to a point where I'm always kind of struggling to get known or someone to know my work. And then you have a tipping point. And that tipping point, you, you know, that, that's no longer your reality. And then your reality is something else. So now the next desire for me is, how do I balance work life, you know? So my next journey for me is I don't want to work as hard as I work. Yeah. You know what I mean? I want to be able to, I want to create other passive incomes and figure out a way to only work when I really want to, you know? And um, that's my next journey in life is to create like a, you know, 70, uh, 30% work, 70% life. Situation. I like that, I like that a you lot. I mean? You know, so that's my goal. I, and and for problem solving, one of the things I've learned, I'm gonna say this real quick because I have to run actually too. But I uh for problem solving, you know, I've learned that you have to have peace on set. Set is a very stressful thing. You're you have five thousand, you know, you're working on a I'm working on this, I'll just working on this Amazon, MGM plus Amazon series, right? But Forrest Whitaker in Chicago. You know, you got, and there's Warner Brothers involved. So you got Warner Brothers execs there. You got the production company exec from LA there. You got MGM there. You got everybody's watching dailies. You got, you know, people expecting you to do things. Else. You go, if you don't make your day in terms of time, you can get fired. If you if that becomes a uh, something that's a, that becomes more than a few times. So you got a lot, it's a lot of pressure. And then it's got to be beautiful and emotional. It's got to be all the things that you want you know, under the clock, <laughs> you know? And so, but what I've learned in that is that sort of that meditative process, like calm, you know, I always lead too, and I'm going to say I lead with love, like completely, like I lead with patience and love because I want to create a safe space yeah. for, my, for my crew and calmness because I realize that when people are in survival mode, when they're in stress mode, when they're, now they're trying to survive just to get to the next thing, you can't, be creative under those circumstances. Yeah. Well, you, you have a very, your capacity is already exacerbated through stress. And so your brain capacity is, uh, is already limited. Right. You know, your creative capacity is already limited. 
And so my my goal is for myself and for my people around me is to create a safe um, and nurturing space so that their brain capacity is now not worried about oh, this person going to go crazy or this thing. Da, da, da. And now they're overachieving because their brains are in, are in a different stage. Our survival is not the basic function. Now it's, we've gone to a creative stage of the brain, you know? And so the work blossoms. And once I, once I kind of figured that out and that became my modality, um, I started doing better work. And I, you know, and with my collaborators. Now, thank you. That's, 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 that's great. I'm, I honestly, as I, as I'm going to listen back through this, I'm definitely going to tap back in. Cause I, you know, gems are being dropped. Jewels are being dropped here. And, <laughs> and that's, and that's definitely a good one to, to close on the real, the real pod with. And uh, in these last few moments, um, you know, I want to throw you these quick rapid fire questions and then we'll wrap up. Um, so here's the first one. Here's the first one. And the rapid fire, don't overthink. I'm always telling people, don't overthink. It's just like, you know, don't be an Aquarius. Don't be in your head. Um, so uh, what is a lie that you always tell yourself? My age. It's <laughs> great. <laughs> uh, how do you spend your days? Like today, for instance, what are what, what are a couple things that you, you did today? Today I went to the Museum of Photographia, I think it's called. So I saw an exhibit today and I, I made breakfast. <laughs> it's kind of my day. So you, you added and a it's... you added a follow-up question. I'm not gonna ask you that next question. I was like, yo, what you have? What you have for breakfast? Right? <laughs> um, but this is this is the last one um that I got. And this is one that always comes up. Me and my, my partner talk about this all the time, and we're we play uh casting director regularly. Uh what is a Walter Mosley work that should be adapted into a TV show or series or even film? Well, the two ones I thought should be adapted are being adapted. <laughs> and those are the only ones I've read. <laughs> That's a great so answer. One is Man, in the basement, Man in My Basement, which is being adapted, which I was going to shoot, but I didn't, I didn't end up doing it. And Ptolemy Gray, those are the only two Walter Mosley books I've actually read. Um, so I can't, I'm not great to answer that question. No, I, I I dig it. It's it's an honest one. Like every time I, I see something mm -hmm. that feels noirish, I'm like, yeah, we need to. Well, I feel like every Walter Mosley. I feel like every Walter Mosley book should be that. I mean, and they're 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 going through that probably a lot of them me. Good, good. I am looking forward to it, and uh, I feel like I just got some tea that I was not supposed to get. So I'm feeling really happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> but um. Really, truly, honestly, thank you so much for coming on and spending the time with me. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, just sharing, like I said, uh, this has been a highlight for me um, and really privileged to be able to have this conversation with you. And, you know, in these final moments, um, on this final moment, really, um, I want to give you the space to, you know, tell folks where your website is at, social media, all of that good stuff. Um, shameless plugs, if you will. The floor is yours. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I'm, I'm not. I, I'm Sean PZ on Instagram. P-E-E-Z-I-E-S-H-A-W-N, Sean, SeanPeters.com, I guess. Um, I don't know. I'm not a big self-promoter too much, but look forward to more of my own personal art coming soon, you know, both from still photography and also emotion stuff. So I'm working on some things. Look for me to direct some things, hopefully in the future. I'm writing a, a feature-length uh, film, too. So, you know, hopefully look for me to do other things in the future soon.
And there you have it, folks. I want to again thank Sean Peters for coming on and, and blessing us with a bit of his journey and his story. And I'm Rob Lee for Sean Peters saying that there's art, culture, and community in and around your neck of the woods. You've just got to look for it. Oh,